hostile flame. Round and round, attack, attack. Like angry ants, mad with the smell of gasoline. to the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minutes 41 and 42, which begin with Gregor accidentally starting his takeoff and end with the Mariner breaking the knife he was using to pick the padlock on his cage. We ended last episode with Gregor being thrown off balance because everything in his lab was exploding. And we pick up this week with him stumbling into a green lever that trips off a mechanism, a bunch of bubbles fill a tube, and things are happening. Things are happening. (laughs) And they are happening awfully fast. Certainly too fast for Gregor to really do anything with. I imagine myself quite like Gregor in this moment. In a time of crisis. In a time of crisis, there are things he could do. That would save the situation in various ways. But to have the frame of mind and the forethought to do them is completely different. I am not a great in-the-moment crisis thinker. I have plans. I need to know ahead of time and to prepare ahead of time what could happen. (laughs) So as critical as I am of him in this moment, I wouldn't be any better. A lot of focus is paid to the tubes on the side of the frame. I'd say against the wall, but honestly, it's hard to tell exactly where the walls are in these shots. Anyway, in the background, when he falls over the lever and puts his face up near those tubes and they start filling with bubbles, there appears to be a transformer like you'll find up on telephone poles. And I have a feeling that that transformer is related to the bubbles because you can separate hydrogen from oxygen in water because of a process called electrolysis. Right. I know very little about it, but I know all those words you just said. (laughs) I admittedly also don't know a lot about electrolysis, which is why I looked up a bunch of stuff about it. I found an Instructable article that... (laughs) points out exactly how to capture hydrogen from water. It starts off with a lovely introduction that I found very informative. And so this is what I took straight from the article. It says, A water molecule is formed by two elements, two positive hydrogen ions and one negative oxygen ion. The water molecule is held together by the electromagnetic attraction between these two ions. So when electricity is introduced to water through two electrodes, a cathode, or negative, and an anode, positive, these ions are attracted to the opposite charged electrode. Therefore, the positively charged hydrogen ions will collect on the cathode, and the negatively charged oxygen will collect on the anode. When these ions come into contact with their respective electrodes, they either gain or lose electrons depending on their ionic charge. In this case, the hydrogen gains electrons and the oxygen loses them. In doing so, these ions balance their charges and become real electrically balanced bona fide atoms, or in the case of hydrogen, 
a molecule. Because the hydrogen is a pair, therefore it's a molecule, not an atom. Exactly. The reason this system isn't very efficient, the system meaning what's in the instructable article and also electrolysis in general, is that a lot of the electricity is converted into heat during the process. So while there have been reports of 50 to 70% efficiency, anything you do in your home is not going to be nearly that efficient. And you could probably guess that Gregor's system is going to be similar to what I found at this instructable than anything that a scientist would have. And if the best case scenario is, I think you said about 70%, that's the type of system that a person can set up in their home. Stuff made with junk. Mm -hmm. So he is getting nowhere near 70% efficiency. So what's happening to all that heat? Is he just letting it dissipate? I suppose he probably is. This is an emergency system. This is a, okay, we're ready to do the thing. We're going to do the thing. There doesn't need to be storage or use for the byproducts. What I suspect Gregor is doing here, because between the Instructable article and another video from Thomas Kim on YouTube that I watched, he probably has large electrodes down underneath the atoll. And on top of those electrodes are probably large coverings that are designed to capture the gases as they are removed from the water. Because what you'll see if you're doing an electrolysis experiment is that the electrodes under the water start producing bubbles because those gases are coming together, separating out based on where they're at and then floating right. up through the water because that's how gases work. So what he probably has is a large set of electrodes that are charged to capture hydrogen and other electrodes off over here on the side that are charged to capture oxygen. So he's got all of these capture devices for hydrogen that when he throws that switch, all of the power from the atoll that usually goes into lights and other sundry items gets poured into this system, which is why so many bubbles are rising up through those tubes. All those capture devices probably go up to these tubes and from the tube go up into the fabric pipe thing that goes up to the giant float bag up at the top of the tower. Right, but you said it also produces heat. Oh yeah, well, the electrodes are down in the ocean. Okay, so that heat is then turning into probably boiling water. Yeah, but it's the ocean, so... So nobody cares. The heat's probably dissipating a lot faster than anybody would notice. Yeah. Especially since there's a battle going on. Right. Like, ocean water is really good at cooling things off. Because it there's is. just so much of it. So using ocean water for hydrolysis, does the added salt change anything? If anything, it makes the water more conductive. That's true. I tried to look up conductivity in water and what kind of measurements are used to judge that sort of thing and how different types of water compare. Wow, that sounds way over my head. It's way over my head because I'm a podcaster, not a chemist. Suffice it to say that they have a rating for conductivity and regular drinking water has a conductivity rating of like 0.005, whereas seawater is a solid five. So it's very conductive because of the salt in the water. In fact, the YouTube video, which I will post in the listener page because I like it when people are able to watch this stuff, the guy who made the contraption, he pours in lye, which is sodium hydroxide, into the water in order to make it more conductive. In the Instructable, they say that you can use table salt 
But the problem with table salt is that it's sodium chloride. And so anytime you got chlorine involved with stuff, you got to be worried about making chlorine gas. And that stuff is hella poisonous. So try and stay away from it. But then again, lye is also something you don't want to rub on your skin. Yeah. I think when it comes to salt, salt is necessary for life. It helps our bodies run. It makes things taste good. It's also very dangerous to us. <laughs> so as I mentioned, there is a giant gas bag filling up at the top of this tower. And I'm most impressed by how fast the bag is filling up. That's what I was thinking about as you were talking about this hydrolysis process is how fast that bag is filling up. Oh, yeah. In the video that I watched, it took about three hours to fill, I would say, a one-gallon plastic bag Whoa. full of nothing but hydrogen. Wow. But then again, the system was using a little plastic bucket smaller than a shoebox. Okay. And in this case, supply of water is not an issue. Exactly. They have all the water supply that they could want. The limiting is the electrical current and the pathways ability to funnel the gas into the bag mm -hmm. which we see some of that path that tubing that is extending up to the top of the lab does not look in great condition but it does look a good eight inches wide yeah maybe even more it's substantial for sure oh it might even be like a foot wide which can move a lot of gas mm -hmm. so he must have quite a bit of electricity pumping through there. Oh, yeah. Any electricity that isn't being used is just being circulated through a closed system. So all he has to do is well switch it over from one thing to the other. Like He probably keeps the Atoll's generator trained on this system, and then at night he switches it over to the lights. And so he's always got this electrolysis process primed and ready. He's just waiting for the circuit to be completed. Okay, so the generator is running 24 hours a day. In theory. Based on the wind, because it is wind-generated power. So during the day when lights and whatnot are not needed, that electricity is not going anywhere. It's not being used for anything, which is a shame. Mm -hmm. It goes back to our talk about mechanical engineering and how there should be a way to use electricity to store power, moving right. stuff around, dropping it off a tower. So, you right. Know. There are many, many other ways to store energy than a traditional battery. Yeah. Yeah, it's a shame that he didn't have a storage device for both the hydrogen and the oxygen. Having pure oxygen stored mm -hmm. is a great thing that could be really handy to people. There's also the possibility that this lever is just triggering a mechanism that opens up stored hydrogen that he has elsewhere. That could also be a thing. He could have a giant umbrella under the atoll that's just full of hydrogen, like a bubble. Yeah. And he just needs to flip the switch to have it all fly out. That would also work. It would certainly make the atoll more buoyant. <laughs> this process of electrolysis... I know that this is a specific process for turning water into hydrogen and oxygen. So I know that that is a specific thing. But now that we have, as evidence, this rudimentary chemistry going on, does that open up possibilities for other chemical processes to be done by Gregor, but theoretically by somebody else on the atoll that could also produce things that are handy to the people. I'm thinking about fertilizer. 
Uh-huh. And I'm thinking a lot about the bog. And if they understand electrolysis, are there other things that they understand that could be helpful to them? And as someone who knows nothing about chemistry, I really haven't the faintest idea. He's just kind of spitballing. Yeah, but if Gregor knows about chemistry, there's lots of things you can do with chemistry. I think this world doesn't need to be as awful as it is. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we don't have to worry about the atoll for that much longer. No, we don't. Thank goodness. I've not enjoyed our time on the atoll. It's been very stressful. We're coming from the Mariner's point of view, and it's been... Very stressful here on the atoll. Mm -hmm. I am not sad to see it go. Something that surprises me about this machine that Gregor has is how the lever that turns it on and off, in a world where wood is a premium, the one thing in this contraption that is made of an easily broken material is the handle. And he pulls on it so hard that it comes apart in his hands. Yeah... Like, why not have a metal handle? Everything else is made of metal. Why Everything not have a metal handle? Metal. This is one of those things where I know that I'm not good in a crisis moment. Therefore, I would plan ahead. Be like, okay, if that handle can fail in a crisis moment, then it needs a new handle. I'm going to replace that handle. Uh-huh. In my lab, that handle never would have been in a state where it could break in a crisis moment. I don't know off the top of my head the seven stages of grief, and I don't necessarily want to call attention to them right now, but I love Michael Jeter's performance in this moment because he goes through such a emotional journey. He does. Like, he really does. The handle comes off, and he's got this sense of surprise and disbelief, and then he starts laughing because, of course, it would break in this moment, and then he starts to despair about what is going on. He panics a little bit, and finally, he arrives at the determination to grab one of the ropes that are hanging down from somewhere up in the tower. We assume it's connected to the gas bag, but he starts tying it onto the gondola, because if he doesn't secure the gas bag to the gondola, the gas bag will just float away and leave everything behind. I'm really glad that you framed this moment, these moments, in a stages of grief sort of framework because if not for that point of view it would just be an over stereotype of the mad scientist (laughs) and it does not reflect well on the writing certainly and frankly his performance but if you take the time to notice that he's got these different reactions and he's switching from one to another and he's progressing along an arc That makes the whole thing make a lot more sense. It makes it palatable. Did you not catch on that as you were watching it earlier? Did you just think he was like, oh, no, I'm bumbling. Yes, that's exactly. And that's definitely a shortcoming on my part because I didn't enjoy this scene with him. So I went a little glassy-eyed over it which is exactly not what we're supposed to do as minute by minute podcasters but i didn't like it so i zoned out while it was happening and joined back up when he started tying the rope onto the gondola because that made sense Mm -hmm. and of course he has the clarity to start calling out for helen because we were already in crisis mode because the atoll was under attack but now 
a second crisis has cropped up. In the metaphor of preparing dinner, the skillet has caught on fire, and now also the sauce is boiling over, and the dishwasher is starting to overflow. There are too many issues and not enough hands to take care of, and Gregor would be better equipped to handle this crisis if Helen was there with him and not out fighting smokers. Yeah, if Helen and Enola had been in the room, I think he still would have fallen on the switch. This still would have happened, but he would have had three pairs of hands to secure things, to throw any last-minute things onto the gondola, get on the gondola, and be like, okay, we're going. It wasn't what we planned, but we're going. And problem B could have solved problem A. If they had all three of them gotten on the gondola, well, then who cares about the atoll? Mm -hmm. That problem is solved. Yeah. You just got to get away, which Gregor does in the upcoming minutes. So his problem A is solved, and he just has problem B left. Let's leave Gregor behind for a moment, because we go outside to the gas barge that the smokers have brought with them, and we see that in the middle of the fight, we have smokers filling up reservoirs with gasoline to keep their machines moving. And a little detail that I like about this insert is that they have that bell from full-service gas stations. You know, when you drive in, you go over the tube and it makes the ding-ding sound? Yes. Yeah, they have that. Okay. A couple times. I want to clarify what I'm seeing here. So as soon as we leave Gregor in the lab, the first thing we see is a man holding onto the side of the barge. He's got a gas bag tank, a fuel tank, strapped to his back and is being filled up. Uh-huh. He's going to swim out to whatever speedboat, jet ski, whoever he's assigned to, and fill that up. That is very interesting, very bizarre. Is he on a jet ski? He is on a jet ski. Okay, thank goodness. Okay, seriously? At first, I was picturing actual swimmers. Okay, so he's on a jet ski, and he's ferrying fuel from the tanker ship to the individual ships. I'm not entirely convinced that he's ferrying all of that gasoline. I think that reservoir oh, that he's wearing on his oh, back is his connected own... to the jet ski. Oh, my gosh. See, this is why I married you. <laughs> because the boats are big enough that they can have larger gas tanks. Right. These jet skis the have... jet skis don't. They've traveled from who knows how far away on these tiny little tanks of gasoline. And so it makes sense that once they've arrived at the atoll, spent some time terrorizing the place a bit, then they would have to fill up mid-battle, which is why these smokers brought this gas barge in the first place. Okay, I think I've got a clearer picture of what's happening here. Side note, you make a good point about having traveled all this way, and perhaps we should have spoken about this a few episodes ago when we saw the fleet coming. Did the jet skis really travel all that way under their own steam, or do you think they were towed? I would like to think, because I am a dreamer, that the smokers would have some sort of tugboat-esque vehicle that could push or pull the jet skis until they get to a closer spot. I'm going to bring up Star Wars again, because in some of the extended universe cartoon shows they have, the Empire has these transport carriers that are specifically designed to ferry TIE fighters 
through hyperspace so that the ship arrives and there are four TIE fighters hanging underneath it and the TIE fighter pilots climb down in and then the TIE fighters detach and go do their thing without having to fly around in open space like other ships do. And I would like to think that maybe the Spokers could find an old tugboat and get it moving and have some sort of towing set up where maybe it's just a chain and they hook onto the chain or it's something more rigid. But the idea of a boat showing up and then all of these jet skis detaching and then fanning out from the boat, it's a cool visual in my head that I would like to see, if nothing else. Yeah, and we did get that cool visual of the boats and jet skis all lined up mm -hmm. and leaving their trails in the water, and it was a great visual. Adding that idea to it, yeah, it would have been a lot of fun. And so it would be cool to say, oh, it's, it's this very long, thin boat with a powerful engine in the back, and all the jet skis come off the side, and they do these nice arcing paths to meet up in the middle. Yeah, that would have been very cool. Be nifty. You know, 25 years too late, but you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Something that I think is also pretty nifty about this gas barge is that the barge itself is clearly no longer suitable to hold fuel in its cargo area. They have constructed a bag Yeah. that is sitting on top, acting as their fuel tank. I like the idea of a fabric bag holding their fuel because you can actively see how full or empty it is by the shape of the bag. And it's a bit more reliable from a visual sense than having a solid tank. And it's more exciting to us as the viewer to be able to see it and to see the details of their world. Longtime listeners will know that I'm not big on action scenes. I get bored. It's just a lot of visual activity that lasts for a certain period of time. And honestly, most of the time, you can just skip it, see who's alive at the end. There you go. You've got your action scene. But adding details like what we see here with the barge and the bag and the refueling with the backpack, that adds interest to this action scene that's going to go on for quite some time. But they did a good job of it's not just fighting. There are things actually happening that you do need to watch it. It is worth the time to pay attention to the flurry of activity. We're done with the gas barge for now. We cut over to a jet skier and he is approaching the edge of the atoll and he does a little skip off awake and then he pitches forward on the jet ski and he goes under the water. I tried so hard to find a video of someone in the real world on their GoPro or whatever duplicating this in real life because the jet skier goes under the water and then we see under the water he is speeding through like a torpedo so that he can pop out in the lagoon and every video I've found the jet skier goes under for maybe two three seconds and then they pop out and their jet ski is on its side no one successfully launches out of the water like these guys do that's interesting because I didn't look for footage. I just wanted to know if this was physically possible. So the answer that I found was from Thrillist.com. They said that you can absolutely do this. Jet ski is designed to go no deeper than six feet down, mm -hmm. which this one, the way it's portrayed, it's probably going further than six feet down, but whatever. And then you pull back up and you shoot out like a breaching whale. 
And some models are even capable of doing a 360 degree barrel roll while this is happening. Mm-hmm. There's no footage of it. So it sounds like that's something that takes a lot of skill and a lot of practice, which is very dangerous because like the videos you found, if you go underwater, you come back out and you're on your side. Well, now you've got this big, heavy machine that is half on top of you. A lot of the videos I've seen is people on stand-up style jet skis. You don't see a lot of two rider jet skis doing this maneuver because you don't have the flexibility when you're standing and moving around. Those stand-up style jet skis are just so much more agile compared to the sit-on ones. I imagine they're probably also lighter, like less bulky. Oh, yeah. Although the weight might be an advantage in trying to get yourself under the water. Although with that bulkiness also comes more air, which makes you more buoyant. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm. It's a tricky thing. Not everybody can do it. Like I, Yeah, yeah. I was looking at Instagram posts of guys on stand-up jet skis where they get launched in this little 10-foot wide swimming pool and they rev it and they bounce themselves in such a way that they can do a backflip on the jet ski in a pool. So there is an element of skill that comes to this and you would imagine someone who lives their life on the water would be able to pull something like this in a combat situation. Yeah. And as far as real world production goes, somebody did this probably in pieces. The footage is very clear. Somebody dove under the water in this thing mm-hmm. and somebody traversed underneath the water and somebody popped out at the other end. Yeah, we watched a YouTube video that someone shot on their phone of the Waterworld stunt show, and they have this as an element of the stunt show, diving under the water with the jet ski and popping out again. Yeah, just like something that we will see in the next couple of minutes sometime. It is absolutely possible to do this. This version of it is exaggerated. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Just like a Kevin Costner scene we're going to see in a few minutes. Mm -hmm. Well. I think you could also look at the water skier that we're about to see go over a jump into the atoll. He goes up the jump and he's able to clear the atollers partially because they duck and let him fly over them. But then because he isn't being towed by a plane, instead getting most of his speed from what I assume is a speedboat or a jet ski, he doesn't have the course correction provided by being towed by a plane like the other jet skiers had. So he is off target when it comes to where he's going to land in the atoll. Yes, he is. And his off-targetness presents to us problem C, (laughs) in that he runs straight into the Mariner's cage. Okay, I want to check again. Does he knock it clean off of the chain, or does he just knock the chain loose? The cage is completely off of the cable that was holding it up. Okay. So there must have been Ah, a hook of some kind or the cable snapped because of the extra weight. Maybe it could have been that the Mariner, with all of his shaking, had finally gotten the cage in such a position where it was ready to fall off. And this smoker is the final straw that broke that camel's back. Yes. And this particular landing, I highly doubt that the smoker is dead. Probably just knocked out. Oh, absolutely. I see no reason why him hitting this way would have killed him, but it certainly would have knocked him out. 
And he is going to die. He's going to drown unconscious in the goop. Mm -hmm. And this is not... mm -mm. I have a hard time with the time we spend in the goo. It is very gross. And there's just a lot of face being covered in it. You know it's getting in his mouth, up his nose. Mm -hmm. Like, you just know that that's all happening. And it's really, really rough. One detail about this smoker is that he appears to have lost the front part of his top row of teeth, so he definitely didn't have to worry about chipping any teeth on the cage when he hit it, but yeah, he is pushed off of the cage into the muck by the mariner, and the mariner reaches onto this guy's belt and pulls out a knife so that he can start stabbing it at the padlock. It's funny because the entire time that the mariner's been in the cage, he has tried to get a thing, anything, an, an object of some kind to work on the lock with. He has not been picky. I need a thing. Well, he finally has a thing. It's just a shame that this smoker didn't have something like bolt cutters. Right? But then again, it's a shame that this smoker didn't have a lot of things like good judgment and <laughs> the situation where he could choose to throw his lot in with someone else or the opportunity to be on the plain water skiing team, or anything like that. There's a lot of unfortunates in this guy's life. Not that he has to worry about it for all that much longer. With any luck, the poor man will stay unconscious while he drowns. We can And help. he will just never wake up, and he never needs to experience how he is dying. <laughs> the battle is not going well for the atollers. The smokers are crawling up onto the docks. More berserkers are flying over the wall into the atoll, and when I say flying over the wall, one shot in particular really highlights that idea because we start off looking at this jet skier at a distance. He is flying through the air and then he passes over Helen and Enola. The trouble with this jet skier is that his trajectory is a straight line. It's not an arc. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it totally is. So he's suspended from an airplane or a helicopter being flown through the air? Most likely a helicopter. Yeah. With that kind of precision, probably a helicopter. In this production, they used cranes and helicopters a lot, as well as the seaplane. But when it came to working with the actors, it was pretty much always the helicopter. Okay. So there are two, maybe three cables attached to this jet ski as they're flinging it through the air. They did mostly a good job of airbrushing out the cables, but at the very start of this shot, you can see these not thick black cables, but ghostly remnants of black cables holding this thing up. I do not have the precision in my frame by frame to pause at the right time. But aside from the jet ski stuff, I'm also really digging the bone crossbow I that Helen is using. That was bone. I really dig the transition between watching the jet skier fly over the wall to Helen. It's a real nice transition. And she is tracking him. She's going to shoot him, mm -hmm. which she does. After she shoots him, we see a jet skier fall off his jet ski. It doesn't feel like that's the one that she shot at, but is it? I think we're supposed to think that. Yeah, I think we are supposed to think that. I don't know. It just doesn't feel right. Something else that's fun about this shot of Helen and Enola 
fighting is that there is a guy with blonde curly hair. He is holding another one of those black spiked balls, probably bringing it up to the catapult to launch it more smokers, as well as a bunch of ace holers. One has another bone crossbow. One has a sawtooth sword thing, and everybody is running around trying to mount some sort of defense. Well, most people are trying to mount a defense. Some people are standing up at the top of the wall shouting about how they need to offer up the girl to the smokers in order for the attack to stop. Oh my goodness. This woman. (laughs) So not helping. She isn't. I'm quite sure this is the same matriarch actress from the town meeting that was talking about how they need to get rid of Enola. So she's just on her same old box. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And she probably feels very vindicated and a sense of power because, by all evidence, she was right. And, I mean, she was right. They are here for her. (laughs) They are here for Enola. So, her statement, give them the girl and they will leave. Yeah, not likely. No, I don't really think they're going to leave. And I think anyone who supposes that if you give bad people what they want, they'll stop being bad that's not really how bad people work yeah bad people do things because they need things but they're bad people they don't necessarily need a reason to do bad things yeah you can give them anola they will likely still pillage your atoll yeah because they're having a good time Mm -hmm. thankfully the woman doesn't get that much of a sense of superiority because she is immediately gunned down by smokers which feels so right okay if she had just shut up and continued to fight She still would have died. It wouldn't have made a difference. (laughs) But maybe she could have killed one more smoker before she went down herself. Mm -hmm. I like how Helen, apparently able to hear the woman on the wall, ducks over Enola and starts shielding her because she sees so much flurry of activity. She doesn't know who's going to suddenly become more interested in Enola than the smokers. So her protective instincts kick in. And then we see Gregor shouting from the top of the tower, and Helen being able to hear Gregor is so improbable, but they need to get to the tower. That's the important thing. Yeah, I give Helen a lot of credit for being able to hear and understand both these things coming from opposite directions at the same time she's fighting, at the same time protecting Enola. She is somebody you want in a crisis. Mm -hmm. She's doing a fine job. And in one of my favorite things from this minute, we get this awesome little montage of Helen and Nola running towards the tower because they are keeping low to avoid explosions. There's more berserkers flying on jet skis over the walls. Helen and Nola run past the organo barge and in an unbroken shot we pan past the walkway to find the mariner in the cage still trying to pick the lock but he is unsuccessful in such a way that he breaks the knife that he's using to stab at the padlock which is not great for him. No, it's a real shame. I looked up online how to pick these type of locks, and if it's a multiple lever padlock, then you really need two tools, one to put pressure on the bolt and another tool to actually lift the levers in the padlock. But if it's a single lever padlock, then all you need is something that's narrow enough to go in the hole. The arrow was probably the best shot that he had, but even that probably would have been too big. What he needs is a stiff wire, something that in theory 
you like could a, keep on your person. Right. Like a bobby pin. Exactly. A bobby pin would be perfect in this situation. Yep. But he is sadly without bobby pin and at this point likely thinking, well, it's been a good run. <laughs> The look on his face once he breaks that knife is definitely something you could imagine would be expletive laden. But we certainly don't get to dwell on the latest development in his problems because immediately the seaplane comes back around and is just shooting wildly. Mm -hmm. And that brings us to the end of today's episode. A lot of story progression in helping to get us where we need to end up by the end of the action scene. Mm Mm-hmm. So join us next time. We are going to see Gregor get swept away by his flying machine. The Hellfire Gunner will kill one of his own dudes. And Helen will make the Mariner an offer he can't refuse. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tuohy, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching MadMaxMinute and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit Patreon.com slash MadMaxMin. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld Episode 21. We'll see you next time.